good morning. I'm glad you're here today. We sing the song that only God can raise a life. And today is Palm Sunday. We celebrate the cross of Christ. Next week is Easter Sunday. We've got a special service planned for you both at 9 o'clock and at 1030. We're going to be outside. Still have bridge kids in here. People are going to be doing all kinds of different things. If you are looking for an area to serve, I'm sure they didn't ask me to ask, but um, the parking lot team probably needs extra people. The ushers probably need extra people. The bridge kids probably need extra people. If you normally serve there and you're not next week, maybe go over and just check with them. Hey, can you use me somewhere? Because um, we're going to have people doing all kinds of stuff. You remember last week we gave you invite cards. You can invite different people to come to church next Sunday. And you'll see in your uh, cup holders today, you had a little three by five card and an ink pen. And we're going to invite people to come and uh, we're going to have people serving all over the place. And we're going to have music and we're going to have a message. We're going to you know, clear gospel presentation and uh, celebrate the resurrection of Christ. I mean, there's no other time in Christianity that we celebrate more than, than then, that Jesus Christ was risen, the tomb is empty, and God raises a life still today. And uh, that's all going to be great. But what we want to happen is actually supernatural. Some of those people that you invite um, we want them to be connected to Jesus for life change. We want them to be transformed. Some of them maybe say that they love God, been running from God, and want to bring them back. And some of them are people that don't know Christ. We want them to come to Christ. And so we gave you that 3 by 5 card and that ink pen. So you could take it today and, and just write down uh, that person's name. You can be as vague or specific as you want about who that person is. And we have a prayer team that prays uh, every week for requests that come in on our connection cards that are in the worship program. Oftentimes you'll hear me point our guests to those connection cards. And if you're a guest, you can fill it out today. There's information about how to do that in your worship program and where to take it and all that stuff. But um, every week we have a, a group of folks that pray through those prayer requests. And this week, our prayer team is going to be praying through different folks that you're inviting, whether it's that they'll respond or maybe it'll be a trigger for some of them. Maybe they won't come to church, but that will begin a spiritual journey for them. And so just even right now, if you want, you can take those cards and just write on the name, write a name down of whoever you're going to invite. Write Nick or Susie or my friend or my cousin, my mom, my dad, whoever it is you're thinking of. And then at the end of the service, you can just drop it in. There's little baskets over by the offering box over there. Maybe somebody will be holding it at that time. Just drop it in there. On Monday, we'll send that to our prayer team. Don't put down anybody's social security number, anything like that. And that to be private. And the prayer team's going to get it. And then they're going to start praying throughout the week that God would do. And maybe you'll put a request on there. Maybe you know they need to come to Christ. Or maybe you know there's a hurt in their life or something they need to deal with. And uh, you can jot down whatever is specific or vague as you want about those things. You can put your name if you want. Maybe you need courage uh, to invite them or to share the gospel with them or whatever it is. And uh, our folks are going to be praying about that because we believe what we want to happen isn't just that we have a fun service outside and people are friendly and all those things are nice. We want supernatural things to happen. And so there's a supernatural battle that takes place, and we believe prayer is a, a big part of that. And so we're going to have people praying all throughout the week for that service, but not just that, you know, the sound goes well or whatever logistical details, um, that God would change people's lives. And so if you want us to pray specifically about a person, um, you can write them down on that card now or sometime uh, before the service is over with and drop them in those baskets before you leave. And I'm going to pray right now. I'll pray for the people maybe that popped in your head. Uh, they probably popped in your head for a reason, uh, probably because you love them or have a burden for them in some way. And uh, God loves them more. And I don't know the names. God does. I'm, I'll just pray kind of over them all right now. I'll pray over us, and we'll open up the scriptures together. Father, we come into your presence grateful that we can call you Father, that we can come to you and talk to you about everything that's going on. And uh, I pray right now for those that are thinking of folks they may invite to church. They might be thinking of somebody that's in a different state or even a different country that they might encourage to go to church, um, wherever that's at. Or it might be somebody coming here to Southbridge. And I pray if it's somebody coming here um, that we would be the, as friendly as we've ever been and that we would uh, be able to present the gospel clearer than it's ever been presented before and, and all those things would go well, but ultimately we know that you're the only one that can raise a life. And we sang that song. We believe that's true. We believe that you're the only one that can transform to take somebody from without hope and without you and bring them to you. And I pray that you would do that. And I pray for each person that's being written down or 
Uh, maybe for one reason or another, someone doesn't want to write down somebody's name, uh, but you know they're on their heart and on their mind, and, and I pray for them. And I pray for us as we open up your scripture today, that you'd speak to us, that you'd reveal yourself to us, that we'd be more equipped to live this life that you've called us to, that we'd worship you through the way that we live, through the thoughts that we have, through the, the deeds that we do, that you'd transform us into the men and women and children and parents and grandparents and all the different people that you want us to be. God, that we would just be in your hands, molded and made into who you want, used and poured out as an offering to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. We've been doing this series called Movement, going through the book of Acts, talking about God's movement, which is the local church. It's the local church has been said to be the hope of the world. It's God's plan A for reaching the world. There is no plan B. It's you and it's me. We're the church. And it's God's movement that we read about in the book of Acts. We've been going through the first 20 chapters so far. Today we're in Acts chapter 21. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to be in Acts chapter 21. Start reading in verse 1. And we're picking up where we left off last week. Last week we were looking at Acts chapter 20. And it was really a two-part message that was Paul's one sermon that he preached. It was the only sermon that he preached in the book of Acts to believers. And he was telling them how to live a significant story. Next week, our theme and the message, the Easter message, is going to be story. Talking about the greatest story ever, the Easter story, and how our story connects with that. As the Apostle Paul shares his story. In Acts chapter 20, he had told them about how to live a significant story. And it was a significant story through a life of gospel service. We talked about gospel service. And we talked about how not only the life that he had lived in the past, the life he was living in the present, the life he planned to live in the future. And he said some huge things. He said that he didn't consider his life worth anything except to do God's will, except to fulfill God's purpose, except to pursue God's plan, which he believed at that moment was to go to Jerusalem. And then he told them it's better to give than it is to receive, to give your life away. Huge statements. And then he gets down on his knees with these Ephesian elders, these close friends he had spent three intense years with, and it's a highly emotional passage. They weep together, they pray, and then they're going to leave. And where we pick up today, it's still a highly emotional passage. Look at verse 1 in chapter 21. After we had torn ourselves away from them, so they didn't want to leave. They knew they had to leave. They were going to fulfill God's will. They had to tear themselves away. Have you ever had to tear yourself away from something? You're reading a, a book or watching a movie or, you know, the last minute of a game can always last like 20 minutes. And you're like, just a minute, honey, just one minute. Can't pull me away from that or some experience that you're having. You're into some tasks or something that's happening. I was telling the first service, our two-year-old daughter right now, she's got these pink boots that she's connected to. They're, we've handed them down to every kid. They're jacked up. The zipper doesn't work. They're broken. She'll just walk around the house. Pink boots are broken, you know, and she's saying all this stuff. But she never wants to take them off. We try not to let her wear them everywhere. One place that we always take them off is when she's going down for nap time. That's not a fun experience. She's attached to the boots. And so she starts crying. She's, I want my boots. And we're like, you'll be better off without the boots. Lay in the bed. I'm trying to lay her down. I know we're bad parents. But at any rate, she's attached to the boots. We have to tear her away from the boots. Paul had to be torn away from these relationships. These friends of his that he had in Ephesus. He had spent these three intense years with. He says, after we had torn ourselves away from them. And then he goes on. The second part of verse 1 all the way to verse 4 is really a travel log. We've seen this before in the book of Acts. And then he gets to a church in verse 4. It says, uh, we put out to sea, second part of verse 1, and sailed straight to Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes. <laughs> Sounds snooty, doesn't it? Rhodes. <laughs> we went to Rhodes. And there to Patara. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. And so while they're there, look at verse 4, what they do. It said, finding the disciples there... We stayed with them for seven days. So they found disciples. They didn't, they didn't start this church. They, they found the disciples that were there. They connect with them. 
They share life together with them for seven days. So through the Spirit, they urge Paul not to go to Jerusalem. And Paul's already told us back in chapter 20, he knows that God's plan is for him to go to Jerusalem. And he says, I don't know what awaits me there. Verse 23 says, I only know that prison and hardships await me there. Apparently through the Spirit, these believers that were in Tyre had that same revelation that if you go to Jerusalem, things are going to go bad, Paul. And so they urge Paul, don't go because we care about you. So you see this love for Paul. Paul knows he has to go. Verse 5, but, contrast, when our time was up, when the boat was unloaded, we left and continued on our way. And all the disciples there, so the whole church, and their wives, and the children, the whole family, it was a big church potluck out on the beach, accompanied us out to the city, and there on the beach, we knelt down to pray. Another emotional passage, he has to say goodbye again. Verse 6, after saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship, they returned home, we continued on our voyage from Tyre and landed at, hard name, where we greeted the brothers. You try it. You know, come on over here. You got the Bible right here. We went past the hard name place, so they greeted the brothers. And uh, it says in verse 8, leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist. Philip's the only person in the Bible that's given the office, given the title evangelist. Timothy, a pastor later in the church at Ephesus, actually, Paul writes to him and says, do the work of an evangelist. This is the only person that's called an evangelist, an important office in the church. And here's Philip, and, and, and Paul's going to stay with Philip. Which, if you remember the book of Acts, it's an interesting meeting. Because Philip was an associate in Acts chapter 6 of a guy named Stephen. Those of you who know what happened after that in Acts chapter, end of Acts chapter 7, beginning of Acts chapter 8, is that Paul's part of Stephen being murdered. When Paul was fighting against God. And so now he goes to Stephen's friend's house and stays with him. I wonder what those conversations were like. Talk about celebrate recovery being a place of healing. I mentioned the healing that took place as Paul and Philip had some conversations there. Told some stories, some forgiveness. Philip was the evangelist, one of the seven. That's alluding to Acts chapter 6. One of the deacons in the church. And he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied a significant role in the early church too, prophecy. He had these four daughters who did this. They were young, unmarried girls. And then verse 10 gives us the, really the, the main story for today. It says, after we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, didn't ask for it, he took it, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and we'll hand him over to the Gentiles. Now Luke says, Luke, the author of the book of Acts, when we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go to Jerusalem. So now even his friends are saying this to him. And Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. Here in this passage of Scripture, we've got a guy who's focused on doing God's will. He's on a mission. God's will, he knows, is to go to Jerusalem. He wants to do that, but he's continually being persuaded not to do that. He's got people warning him. He knows it's going to be bad. And here he says, you're breaking my heart. And he's continuing on this mission to do God's will. Talking about God's will is an interesting thing with believers in Jesus Christ, with followers of Jesus. Because we talk a big talk about God's will. We talk a lot about God's will. And if you look out there and see the blogs that are written, the books that are written, the sermons that are preached, most sermons and blogs and all that stuff about God's will are about knowing God's will. 
How do you know God's will? Find God's will. Discover God's will. Uncover God's will. These are the kind of titles that you'll see. Five keys to realizing God's will. Here's the steps, secrets to key, all the stuff that's out there about God's will. It's all about knowing God's will. And so we talk a big talk about God's will. And we live in a society that talks a big talk, don't we? Think about every venue that there is, every possible place, there's big talkers. Sports, people talk big talk, whether it's boxing, football, basketball, whatever it is, what they're going to do and how they're going to do it, and they're going to be the champs. And if you doubt this, Google Richard Seymour for the Seattle Seahawks, and you will find lots of talk. You mad, bro? Just type that in, and there will be lots of talks that will be out there, videos that you can watch people talking trash as athletes. Big talk. You look at politicians and all the talk that gets said by politicians, all the promises that are made. You will not, if you like your insurance, you will not have to give up your insurance. How's that working out for a bunch of us? Think about all the different things that are out there. If you commercials, uh, celebrities, different promises that are made. Google products that have been sued because their commercials promised something they couldn't deliver on. Reebok recently lost a, a lawsuit because they gave, they gave out a shoe. Uh, I don't remember what the exact title of the shoe was. But it had some kind of thing on the back. They said, basically, if you wear this shoe, you look like a supermodel. <laughs> Somebody apparently was at home going, I'm wearing it. Nothing's happening. And they just got sued. They lost a bunch of money over this. You see some of these commercials, the diet pill commercials. Have you ever seen these? A guy comes out. He's got like a 24-pack, you know. Where did those muscles even go? I don't even know that's possible. Like you're watching the thing. A female comes out. She hasn't eaten in like three years. You know, she's on there. And it says, you could look like this. Just take this pill. And then the fine print at the bottom, it says, and work out nine times a day and never have sauce on anything ever or salad dressing or anything. Stop with the calories. Would you please work out and take this pill? It's like the fine print at the bottom. We make these huge claims, but do they deliver? But we do it as Christians too. Just think about it as Christians, the things that we say. We're not a high church. We don't do a lot of liturgy at Southbridge, but every Christian has creeds. There are things that we state that are true, that we all believe. We know that Romans chapter 10 gives us a creed. If you're a follower of Jesus, you've bowed your knee to Jesus Christ and you say, Jesus is Lord. That's the creed of every Christian. But think about what that means. If Jesus is Lord, that means he's master. He's owner. He's in control. Whatever he says, we do. How many people do you know that Jesus is Lord? Big talk. We say that we love our neighbors as we love ourselves. Love is a word that gets thrown around like Tic Tacs. I mean, it's just it's there. Love, love. We should all love and all love, love. So how many people do you know that actually love someone the way they love themselves? It's a big talk. We will pound our fist about the sanctity of marriage. Marriage is sacred when we're arguing about the gay debate. And gay marriage. What about sacredness in our own marriages? And if they're so sacred, what sacred times happening in your home? And if they're so sacred, why are the divorce rates the way that they are? Is it really sacred or is it only sacred for this conversation? Big talk. Paul's made some big talk. Paul has said that he counts his life worth nothing. That was a sermon he was preaching. He wasn't doing it. Acts chapter 20, verse 24, I consider my life worth nothing to me if only I may finish the race and complete the task. All I want to do is God's will. Big talk, verse 35, Jesus said it's better to give than to receive. That's easy to say. What are you going to do? And what's happening in this passage is Paul is doing it. He's not just talking the talk. He's walking the walk. Now he's on this journey. Now he's actually doing God's will. So let's stop talking about God's will, talk, and knowing. Let's talk more about doing God's will. Because oftentimes, the things that we're actually struggling with, we know God's will. The question is, will we do it? Think about the decisions you have to make. In the days ahead, think about the decisions you have to make. Regarding relationships, spiritual decisions you have to make, you have to decide whether to trust Jesus or not. The Bible actually says what God's will is for that. 
what jobs, you know, I have career decisions to make, relationship decisions to make, financial decisions to make, all kinds of decisions to make, sometimes sin decisions to make. Do we know God's will? Isn't it really the issue? Usually that will we do God's will? I think about the decisions I've had to make, whether to trust Jesus or not, when to get married, when to have kids, what to plant this church, the vision of the church we thought God gave us. And then there's been lots of people on the journey along the way that said, I think you should change the vision for their sake. And the question for me has been, will you do, Scott, are you going to do the vision? Are you going to do God's will? And doing God's will, we're going to talk about not just what we know, but what we're willing to take action. What would it take for you to actually do God's will? As we talk about God's will today, I want to make three acknowledgments about God's will. And the first one is one that we oftentimes don't talk about, but I think we all know to be true, is that doing God's will can be very difficult. Doing God's will can be very difficult. Here we see it's difficult for Paul he says, you're breaking my heart. These people are weeping. They're continually getting warned, continually getting told, don't go to Jerusalem. But he knows that God's will is for him to go to Jerusalem. And there's a battle that takes place there. And we see throughout the scripture, it's not just this isolated situation with Paul here. Think about throughout the scripture, doing God's will is a difficult thing. Other people make huge claims. Think about Peter. Peter makes a claim that sounds a lot like what Paul said last week in verse 24. Even if everybody else denies you, Jesus, I'll go with you even to the death then, first opportunity he has to deny Jesus to a servant girl, he denies Jesus. Big talk. But he didn't do it. And then you think about people who did God's will. And we talk about those people. David, when he fights a giant. Old Testament, this is one of the most popular stories in the Bible. Oftentimes people have written books that aren't even Christians about David fighting a giant. That's a well-known story. We talk about David going and doing it. It couldn't have been easy. If it was easy, why didn't anyone else do it? Why is everyone else cowering? Why are, why are all his older brothers hiding? They're not going out to fight. Why is Saul the king, who's bigger than David and supposedly stronger than David, why is he not going out and doing it? I bet after David fought the giant, someone else said, I could have done that. Well, let me address that person right now. Well, you didn't. And we're not talking about you thousands of years later. We're talking about David. You know why we're talking about David? Because he did God's will. Not just because he knew it. If you wonder if it's difficult, the only example we really need is Jesus. Today's Palm Sunday. We talk about Jesus coming in and his journey to the cross, those passion hours. It's interesting that Jesus is so poised coming up to the Garden of Gethsemane. Then he turns to some of his friends and he says, my soul is filled with anguish and sorrow. He walks a couple feet away. He falls down on his knees and he begins to pray so intensely that there are sweats of, drops of blood coming from his brow. And he says famous lines, God, if there's any other way, there's got to be another way, another will, another plan, another situation where this can happen, but not my will. Now, Jesus knew why he came to earth. He knew why he left glory. He knew why he left heaven. He knew what this place was like. He knew in his head, he knew all that I came to give my life as a ransom for many. I came to seek and save that which was lost. I came for the, the, the lost sheep. I came. He knew why he came to give his life away. He knew that it was the cross. Luke chapter 9, verse 51. He set his face towards Jerusalem. He's resolute. He's made a resolution. I'm headed towards Jerusalem. He knew he was going to the cross. So why is he wrestling with it now? Because there's a difference. He feels now the weight, the emotional weight, the spiritual weight of your sin and my sin, the pressure of being separated from to actually do God's will. Doing God's will is difficult. Not my will, but yours be done. So grateful that he still did it. Paul knew that doing God's will was difficult. And here he is. We see the struggle. 
Go back to verse 10. He's already been warned in verse 4. In verse 23, apparently he was warned before in chapter 20. And here in verse 10 of chapter 21, see, after we had been there a number of days, he's been at Philip's house, and he's with the evangelist. And then this prophet named Agabus comes down from Judea. Now, Agabus, we've already seen prophesy in the book of Acts. And he actually prophesied about the famine. That's probably the reason why Paul's on his way to Jerusalem to deliver an offering. And so that was 15 years earlier. Now here comes Agabus. Apparently Paul and his buddies are standing around together in a group. It says, coming over to us, he took Paul's belt. He tied it around his own hands, his feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in the same way, the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. So here's this prophet. He comes on the scene and he does this uh, very Old Testament prophet style. If you read the Old Testament prophets, they didn't just come up oftentimes and just declare Here's thus says the Lord. Here's the message. There's the facts. See you later. They would act it out. They give you object lessons, a dramatic effect. You see it with uh, Jeremiah. You see it with Ezekiel. You see it with Isaiah. Hosea. Hosea gives a, a dramatic one, a high cost one. He marries a woman who's a prostitute because he's showing this is what it's like. God is committed to us, and we keep committing spiritual adultery on him, and he keeps coming after us, and he keeps buying us back, and he keeps pursuing us. He's proclaiming that to Israel. Big headline grabber, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 20. You know what Isaiah does? This guy, we talk about him at Christmas time. We talk about him as his great prophet in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter 20, Isaiah takes off all of his clothes, including his sandals, walks down the street and starts to proclaim to the people, God's going to strip you naked and humiliate you, Egyptians. Do you think they remembered that? Can you imagine if next week on Easter, some prominent pastor gets in the pulpit naked? God's going to strip you all naked. People are leaving like crazy going to humiliate you. Well, we'd remember it. We'd talk about it. It'd be all over social media, be on you know, magazines and CNN would probably cover it. It'd be all over the place. Agabus is doing that kind of thing here. He walks up. He doesn't say, excuse me, Paul, could I have your belt? He says, it says that they're standing there together. He grabs Paul's belt. Can you imagine somebody grabbing your belt off your way? That's invasive. That makes you feel uncomfortable. Like, Get off, you weirdo. What are you grabbing my belt for? You know? He grabs Paul's belt, pulls it off. He ties up his hands and he ties up his own feet. When I read that, I thought to myself, that's a long belt, Paul. I want to lay off those communion crackers. Because all Bible characters eat is communion crackers, right? <laughs> that's what I thought at the moment. So this is stuck in my head. My next thought was, and you'll have to be a child of the 80s or 90s to understand this. My next thought was, well, maybe it was just a really long belt. Like, like I remember what I wore, and I don't remember if it was junior high or senior high, but I had one of those woven belts. I don't know if you remember those or not. It's woven all together, leather, fake leather, mine wasn't. And I wore it around and tied it up and pulled it down. I was a dork. Probably had my pants pegged and some version of a mullet too. So this is bad. This is bad. And I kept reading and trying to figure out what kind of belt did Paul have on that he's able to tie up his hands and his feet. And apparently what it was is a girdle that would be a long cloth. He'd wrap around himself multiple times and he used it as pockets so he could carry stuff. And then I thought it was first century fanny pack. So Paul had his fanny pack on. Agabus comes up, grabs the fanny pack, pulls it off of him, wraps up his hands, wraps up his feet says, in the same way, the guy who owns this belt, and Paul's standing there going, that's my belt. The guy who owns this belt is going to be arrested by the Jews, handed over to the Gentiles in Jerusalem. In other words, if you go to Jerusalem, you will be arrested. Think this is easy for Paul to decide to go to Jerusalem? It's the third warning in two chapters. He got warned back in chapter 20, verse 23. He got warned by these people he only knew for a week in verse 4. This is emotional experience. Try and imagine where Paul's at emotionally here. Emotional experience of saying goodbye to his friends in Ephesus. Has to say it again to some new friends in verse 4 in Tyre. Now he's standing here. He's hanging out with his friends, Luke and, and the other guys. 
This guy comes up, tears his belt off, tells him this. Not only that, he's already been beaten for the gospel. He's been flogged for the gospel. He's been in prison for the gospel. He's been stoned for the gospel. That stuff wears on you. Can you imagine what Paul's feeling? And then look what happens next. This is probably the worst moment. It says, after that happens, after Agabus does this, verse 12, when we, this is Luke writing, when we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. So up until this point, even though everybody else warns him, don't go, don't go to Jerusalem, it's going to go bad, shouldn't go to Jerusalem, you're going to be arrested. He already has been told 20 years early, don't go to Jerusalem, you get out of Jerusalem, he's fled from Jerusalem, he knows bad stuff happens, it's where Jesus was killed, Jerusalem. It's a bad, bad spot to be going, Paul, if you're proclaiming Jesus. But everywhere else he was at, Luke and his boys would go with him. They believed that God was speaking to Paul. And so we're with you, but now they're the ones saying, don't go. In fact, they're saying it so intensely, verse 13, they're weeping. So then Paul answered, why are you weeping and breaking my heart? You don't think this was hard for Paul? It's incredibly difficult. The word for breaking there, Greek word that's used for breaking, is the idea, oftentimes it was translated and used for people that were cleaning clothes back then, had to beat the clothes out, beat the dirt out of the clothes with a stone. He's essentially saying, why are you pounding away at me emotionally? Why are you beating me up emotionally? You're breaking my heart. Because Paul has got a decision here. He's going to do God's will, which I don't even know if God, he was ever hesitant to do God's will. The fact is that he's realizing, I'm going to have to do it, and I'm not even going to have my friends go with me, the people that are closest to me, so I'm going to have to leave all of them behind. And so there's that wrestling match. We know Paul isn't the only time he has that wrestling match. We read in Romans chapter 7 about doing things. Why do I do stuff I don't want to do? I know the good I want to do, but then I sin's right there and I do the sin. There's a continual battle. Never been there? It's not about knowing God's will, so we do it. I wrote out a list of some of the things that I think many of us can identify with. I'll share some of them with you. I wonder if any of these will resonate. If not, you'll probably think of your own. How about these kinds of decisions? When we wrong someone else, and we know, we know God's will, so we're supposed to admit it to them. We're supposed to go to them, acknowledge that we've wronged them. But we can justify why we wronged them. They deserved it. They, I'll just confess it to God. Like, there's lots of rationalization, lots of justification. But we know what we're supposed to do. We know what the Bible tells us to do. We want to resist sin and temptation, but sin is enjoyable in the moment. It's okay to say that. It's true. Or else none of us would do it. So there's a wrestling match. We know we're supposed to honor our parents. It's in the Big Ten. But what about those of us who think our parents are honorable? There's nothing in the Bible about that. It just tells us we're supposed to honor our parents. But are we going to do it? What about some people? They want to go on the mission field, but they're Christian friends, parents, relatives, siblings. They're guilting them into not going, and they want them to be happy too. And so there's that wrestling match. We want to forgive other people. Ephesians tells us to forgive as Christ has forgiven us. We want to forgive as we've been forgiven, but is that letting them get away with it? Isn't that the terror sometimes? I know God hates divorce, but no one knows what this marriage is like. This is certainly the exception. There's the terror, the back and forth. We talk all the time about killing giants, about walking on water, about being a lion's den. What about the faithfulness and the small stuff on a daily basis? Isn't that where most of us live? Resist sin that everyone else thinks is okay. You ever been in that situation? You know, there's not even supposed to be a hint of immorality in your life, but they're joking about it, and they're your Christian friends. 
It's just looking. You're not doing. And there's the tear. Breaking my heart. I know God's plans more than the American dream, but all my friends got a shiny new fill in the blank. Sexual sin is such a craving. I don't know that God can satisfy that craving. That's the battle. I don't want to compromise, but I need a job. I need the money. I need a fill in the blank. I know I'm not supposed to marry a non-believer, but he's really nice and cute, and he even has a job, unlike those other jobless Christian guys. I know I should give, but I've got debt. That's the tear. You relate with any of these? If not those, maybe some others? And Paul's got the tear there. He's feeling the tear. He knows he's supposed to go to Jerusalem, but now even Luke... Luke is saying, don't go, pleading with him, repeatedly pleading with tears in his eyes, a grown man crying. Now, if, if it's me, I'm thinking, just what do I need to do to make the guy stop? Just stop crying, guy. It made me cry. Paul says, you're beating me up emotionally. But what Paul does next is very interesting. Look at the statement that he makes. He says, you're breaking my heart. But then he says, I'm not only ready to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He's saying, I'm doing God's will. It doesn't matter what the circumstances. It doesn't matter what the perceived outcome. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. What he does here reminds me a lot of a hymn, old hymn. I remember using it at the, uh, decision time. I was preaching to youth groups before. And it goes like this. I don't know if you have ever heard it or not, but it's, I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. I've decided to follow Jesus. I've decided. It's very repetitive. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back, no turning back. The world behind me, the cross before me, no turning back. I've decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. The second verse is what I think is exactly like Paul's story. Though none go with me, still I will follow. Though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. Luke, you're not, you're not going to go. Whoever else is in this group, you're not going to go. I'm going. I'm going to do what God wants me to do. Does that mean it's easy? No, it's not easy. Oftentimes it's hard. You might think to yourself, well, Scott, are you trying to talk us out of doing God's will? Like you're talking about how hard it is to do. And let's just be honest about the reality of when you get into it, what it's like. And, and we're really soft as a culture. Listen to a speech this week. It was given by uh, one of our former presidents, JFK, in 1962, talking about putting a man on the moon, ultimately unified the country with this mission that they had to put a man on the moon but it doesn't mean there wasn't resistance and people weren't uh, questioning it or upset about it. People wanted to know why we spending so much money on it. He gives this speech. You can watch it on YouTube if you want to hear the Boston accent. And it's him talking about why put a man on the moon. He's at Rice University in Texas. And he, he says this to them. I'll share with you just a, a few of the words. He says, but why, some say, the moon. Why choose this as our goal? That's my last Boston accent. They may well ask, why climb the highest mountain? Why, 35 years ago, fly the Atlantic? Why does Rice play Texas? A little joke for them. <laughs> you don't have a chance, Rice. He said, we choose to go to the moon, and we choose to go to the moon in this decade and do other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. We're so soft. Go to the moon. <laughs> we want somebody to buy our gas. Are you kidding? Somebody could go to work for us. That'd be really perfect. Hard. I don't want hard. It matter that it was hard. It was what God wanted. 
And so Paul was going to walk in God's will. He wasn't just going to talk the talk. He was going to walk the walk. And sometimes walking the walk is difficult. Not only is it difficult, but we see what he acknowledges here. It's costly. Another acknowledgement about God's will is that doing, not just knowing, but doing God's will is costly. He says here in this passage of scripture, he says, I'm ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. He doesn't just have a death wish, by the way. Paul's not on some martyr complex where he's trying to be hurt. He's trying to be imprisoned. We see in another place, he gets warned that people are trying to take his life. In Damascus, he, he flees. He goes through a hole in the wall, tries to get away because he doesn't think it's God's will for him to stay there and be in that place. And so he's pursuing God's will. But here he's saying, it doesn't matter what, if things go bad in Jerusalem, because I already know. I already know I've counted the cost. I'm willing to be bound in Jerusalem. That word bound's really interesting right there in verse 13. Because the same word that I mentioned last week, when we were in Acts chapter 20, I said it pretty quick. And if you look at your English translation, it's probably translated, I am compelled in verse 22. I'm compelled, but it's the same Greek word. What he's saying is I'm bound by the Holy Spirit in verse 22. It doesn't matter if I get bound and imprisoned in Jerusalem. I'm bound by the Holy Spirit. I have to obey. I don't get credit for obeying. I have to obey. I have to do God's will. I'm compelled to do God's will. He's already counted the cost. He already knows there's a cost. We make Christianity so cheap and so easy. As Americans, the American Christianity, it's almost foreign completely to what we see in the New Testament in the Bible. If you just say these magic words, then you'll be all set like buying a cheap insurance plan. We just pray this prayer at the end. Think of what the words are. Jesus is Lord. He's Lord of everything. Do you know what that means? It costs your life, all of it. You're giving your life to him. We think it's because we said the statement, because we did some activity, because we showed up at a service. That's not what we see. And what we see is it was incredibly costly, not only for us, it's costly for Jesus Christ. That prophet Isaiah that I mentioned, he's what it says in Isaiah chapter 53. It's for our wounds, or it's because of why his wounds were healed. It's because of our sins that have bruised him. It's because of our sins that he's been crushed. The weight of our sin was on him. All the weight of the world was on his shoulders. The weight of God's wrath comes on him. And then we're healed because of his cost. He paid the price. We were bought at a price. We had a debt that we couldn't pay. What do you mean I have debt? How do I have a debt before God's got? Well, every time we sin, we have something that's separating us from God that has to be paid for, and Jesus Christ paid for it, and that's why he's at the garden praying. God, is there any other way? Is there some other way that debt can be paid? Is there some other way people can be reconciled to you? Is there some other way? There's no other way? So he says, not my will, but your will be done. It's the exact opposite of what we saw in another garden in the Bible in the book of Genesis. In the book of Genesis, Adam and Eve say, God, not your will, my will be done. I think I know what's good. I think I know what's right. And we should still be cool. It doesn't go well. D.A. Carson talks about how Gethsemane is a reversal of the garden of Eden. He says this, in the first garden, not your will, but mine changed paradise to desert. It was death and separation from God. It's the wages of sin. Brought man from Eden to Gethsemane. Now, Jesus, not my will but yours, brings anguish to the man who prays it, but transforms the desert into the kingdom and brings man from Gethsemane to the gates of glory. That's why we'll rejoice next week when we talk about Easter Sunday. is because Jesus did God's will and then brings us to the gates of glory that we can then have heaven. We can have God. We can be reconciled. But Jesus warns people, before you come follow me, you got to know there's a cost to that. It's different than oftentimes what we hear the gospel preached in America. 
And so we would just say, just, 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 would you sign up and make it like your label, make it your political view, make it your thing? Jesus says, he's got large crowds following him. Read Luke chapter 14 on your own. Luke chapter 14, has got these huge crowds following him. If Jesus just wanted to be popular, if he just wanted more and more people to come, then he'd keep feeding people and he'd keep healing people and he'd keep giving messages that they liked. Instead, what Jesus does is he says to the people, listen, if you're going to be my disciple, then you've got to hate your family. And does Jesus think that you're not supposed to honor your parents, that you shouldn't love your wife like Christ loves the church, that you don't have to love your kids and all the other stuff that he said in the Bible, he believes that too. What he's saying is this, that your love for your family and the people that are close to you should look like hatred in comparison to your love for me. If your love for your family doesn't look like hatred comparison to your love for me, you're not worthy to be my disciple. And then he says to them next, he says, you got to carry around a death instrument, an electric chair. If you're going to come follow me, cross, he calls it in that time. Then he gives some stories. First story he gives is of somebody that's going to build a tower in a field. You'd build a tower so you could watch and keep guard over your field. And he says, who goes to build a tower and doesn't first count the cost? How foolish. Because what are they going to do? Get halfway through and then everyone realizes you didn't count the cost. You can't finish the tower. You got to count the cost. You got to figure out how much is the material cost? How much is the labor going to cost? Do you have enough money to complete the project? Otherwise, you don't start building. And he's saying to his followers, you've got to count the cost, come follow me. He gives a second parable, and he says if there's a king who has 10,000 men, and he's going to fight a battle against a king who has 20,000 men, and he realizes he can't win the battle, what's he going to do? You send someone for a peace treaty. You'd be a fool to go into the battle. What he's teaching is this, first parable, you've got to count the cost if you're going to follow me. The cost of your life. And second parable, you've got to count the cost if you're not going to follow me. You're going to fight against the king of kings? You will lose. There's one way to have a peace treaty. It's through my death, and I paid the ultimate price on the cross. Those two parables, they go together. You can't have one without the other. You've got to count the cost of following Jesus. You've got to count the cost of not following Jesus. But there's a cost. You've got to count the cost. And many times we talk like there's no cost. It's just easy. We check off, born-again believer, the way we vote. It's the, was it who we are? I was reading this story a couple weeks ago about a guy named Sanctus, second century believer. The second century, right after the Bible's done being written, Christianity gets outlawed. Uh, specifically, it was really enforced and people were being persecuted in southern Europe. And that's where this guy was at in southern Europe. He was a deacon in a church. He gets arrested. He comes before a governor. The governor asks him the question, Roman governor, uh, why have you been arrested? He answers, I am a Christian. Then Eusebius, the historian, tells us that he answers every question that way. What is your name? I am a Christian. Where are you from? I am a Christian. What crime have you committed? I am a Christian. Are you a slave or are you free? I am a Christian. His accusers got upset with him for doing this. They didn't know his name. They were trying to break him. They started to torture him. They ran him through the gauntlet. They subjected him to wild beasts, put him in vulnerable situations. Finally, they sentenced him to death. They put him in a burning chair, an iron chair that was uh, burning hot, and they set him down in this chair, and they asked him questions again. His last words were the same as his first, I am a Christian. Eusebius tells us the reason why he says this is because it was his whole identity. You ask my name? I'm a Christian. I've been bought at a price. My citizenship is not on this earth. It's in heaven. I am a Christian. You slave or free. I belong to Jesus. I've been bought at a price. I am a Christian. See, for Sanctus... And like many of us, Christianity is not a label. It is a lifestyle. 
It's not a religion, it's an identity. It's not a political view, it's a worldview. It changes everything. Because he had already paid the price. He gave his life to Christ. When you bow your knee and call him Lord, then you're his. Many of us will talk about living for Christ. Are you willing to die for Christ? And forget about being martyred for Christ. Are you willing to die to this life? Are you willing to die to your jealousy? Are you willing to die to your ungratefulness? Are you willing to die to your pride? Are you willing to die to anger? Are you willing to die to your sin? We don't need to worry about martyrdom if we're not even willing to die to the small stuff in this life. Then we're not willing to die. And Paul says here, I'm willing to not only be bound, I've been bound by Christ. I'm his. I'm a Christian. I'm willing to die in Jerusalem. He knew there was a cost. And the cost was great. The cost was his life. Because doing God's will is difficult. Doing God's will is costly. But here's the most important point. Doing God's will is best. Doing God's will is best. And his friends ultimately decide that and say that too. What they say in verse 14 is very similar to what Jesus says in the Garden of Gethsemane. It says, when he, referring to Paul, verse 14, when he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, the Lord's will be done. This isn't fatalism. I'm just going, all right, then we're going to go die. We know they've tried to escape in other situations before. What they're saying is we trust. We trust that even if it looks like from our perspective, this isn't how we draw it up. This isn't what we'd want to happen. We trust that God's will is best. And what happens here, and you could read the rest of the chapter, we won't be able to read it for the sake of time today, but verses 17 through 26, what ends up happening is that Paul goes to Jerusalem with his friends, they go with him, and when they get there, the Jews receive them well. They give a report of how the Gentiles are being saved, churches that are being started. We believe that Paul delivers the offering at that point. Then the Jews say to him, but there's a controversy about you, Paul. Uh, People are saying you can't be Jewish and Christian. And Paul says, you can. Those aren't mutually exclusive. And he takes a vow. He goes and he helps. He pays for some vows for some other guys, probably a Nazarite vow, a Jewish thing that they were doing. And he's already done a vow back in uh, Acts chapter 18. So we know that he's not against this. But then even while he's doing that, going out of his way to the Jew, he's becoming a Jew, they might save some. He wants these Jews to come to Christ. He gets falsely accused of breaking the Jewish rules. Verses 27 to 36, Paul gets arrested. They're beating him to death. Then a Roman governor comes on the scene and arrests him. And he gets arrested, just like the prophecy Agabus said would happen, happens. Just like the people warned him, you're going to go, don't go to Jerusalem. It's going to go bad. Like he said, prison and hardships await me. It's what happens. He's doing it now. You say, well, Scott, how can that be best? He gets arrested. He goes to jail. It's not just other places we've seen Paul and Peter get arrested in the book of Acts, and then they get miraculously freed, and that's great. It shows off God's power. That's awesome. That's not what happens here. Paul gets arrested, Acts chapter 21. He's in chains in Acts chapter 22, 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, to the end of his life. So how's that best? Because Paul knows God's will. And God's will is clearly stated in the scriptures. You will receive power, and the Holy Spirit will come on you, and you will fill up your retirement account. No, that's not, that's not the one. And you will make many memories with your friends, and you will have a nice, sweet family, and everything will go smooth, and you will be healthy, and you will be wealthy, and you will be wise. It says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses wherever I put you, in Jerusalem, in Judea, in the uttermost parts of the world. And what happens is Paul gets arrested, and on that day, and this will be the passage of Scripture we look at next week, we're talking on the Easter service, Paul's about to be killed, and he says, can I say something? And they let him say something to this Jewish crowd that was about to murder him, and he, he asked them to be quiet, and, and they, they quiet down. That's supernatural. They listen. 
And he's a witness before the very people. Much like when Jesus crucified him. He's a witness before the very people that wanted to kill him. He gets to witness. He gets to witness after that as we continue to go through the book of Acts to the Sanhedrin, which essentially be like the Supreme Court. Something that wouldn't happen apart from him being in chains. He gets to witness, God's will is best, he gets to witness then to Roman governors. He gets to witness to the Jewish king. He gets to witness implicitly to all of Rome. He gets to fulfill God's will. And what he says in Philippians is very telling about what he thought about it. In Philippians, while he's arrested in Rome, he writes this. Now, I want you to know, brothers, these Philippian believers that might be discouraged, like things aren't going well. We're not winning here. That what's happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. This isn't how we draw it up. This isn't what we'd want to happen. But this is God's plan, and God's plan is best. Here's why. Because Paul has already said, I've died to this life. Back in chapter 20, verse 24. However, I consider my life worth nothing but only that I may, and now we're seeing somebody who's actually walking the walk, somebody who's actually doing it, and he believes it's best. Here's why he believes it's best, because he believes that that will truly satisfy. See, Paul's not caught up in the battle that many of us are, that we think that we're going to find our satisfaction from creation, from that job. If I just had the right job, if I just lived in the right place, if I just had certain friends, if those friends would just say these things about me, if I just had this much money, if I just accomplished this goal, if I could just make this memory, all trying to get what only God can give from creation. And Paul had died to that. He said, I consider my life worth nothing. And so now he's going after the one thing that he believes will give that satisfaction. It's God. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain. I want that. And so whatever that cost is and whatever that means in my life, it doesn't matter the outcome. It doesn't matter the circumstances. I'm going after him because I believe only God can satisfy. He's like the guy in Matthew chapter 13, verse 44. I believe it's the shortest parable in the Bible. It might be slightly longer than something, but uh, there's a guy who's going through a field and he finds a treasure. And then the, the Bible says that in his joy, he sells all of his possessions to go buy the field because then it, what he gets, oftentimes when we talk about the cost of following Christ, all we think about is what we might lose. Paul's focused on what he's going to get and what he gets is God. And he wants him. Now he's free to do God's will. It's like another missionary story I read last week. James Calvert, you can find him on Wikipedia. James Calvert is a guy who was going to take the gospel to the Fiji Islands. The first people to take the gospel to the Fiji Islands, savages, cannibals that lived there. And he's on a boat. It's a 19th century missionary. He's on a boat there. The captain of the boat tries to talk him out of going on this mission trip. And he uses every persuasive technique he knows. Finally, he gets frustrated with Calvert. And he says, don't you realize that you and the people with you, because he's got a team with him like Paul did, says you and the people with you will all die if you go to these savages. To which Calvert turned to him and responded, we died before we left. We've already died to this life. Now we're free. We're free from the concerns of status, money, experience. For me to live as Christ, to die as gain, now I can do God's will. What about you? What about me? Little decisions we have to make, will we be faithful? Big decisions, a lot of decisions out there to be made. And oftentimes we know what God's will is. You're deciding whether to trust Christ or not. I know some of you come to this church for a while and you haven't trusted Christ. God's will is he's not willing that any would perish, but that everyone would come to repentance. He wants you to trust Christ. He wants you to trust Christ today so you don't become harder and harder and harder as you continue to say no. You wonder whether you should be, you know, committed to your person, your spouse, your, whether you should be sexually pure. It's God's will. First Thessalonians chapter four, verse three, he says, it doesn't say any clearer than this. It's God's will that you would be sexually pure. You wonder any kind of sin. Ephesians tells us there shouldn't be even a hint of immorality in our lives. Should we honor our parents? It's in the 10 commandments. I mean, all the stuff's laid out. The thing I read you earlier, the list I read you earlier comes from the scripture. I just didn't put Bible verses on it. Should I do what God says to do, but I can come up with a reason not to do it. And that's the doing God's will. 
So what do you do? It's hard. It's costly, but it's best. Father God, we come before you. I pray for every person here that says that they have bowed their knee to you as Lord. I pray that you'd give us the ability to do your will. That we would be able to cry out like Jesus cries out in the garden, like these friends of Paul's cry out here. Not my will, but your will. The Lord's will be done. Do your will in our lives. Do what you want in our lives, even if it's hard, even if it's costly. Call us to you because we know it's best, because we want you. Give us a desire for you. Help us to know that only you will satisfy the cravings of our heart. Give us the ability to decide to follow you. Father, I pray if there are any here that don't know your son Jesus as their savior, that right now in this moment, they wouldn't miss the opportunity to trust your son Jesus. And they would acknowledge their sin, their debt before you. If they believe that Jesus died to pay for that debt, that they would call upon Jesus. And they'd ask him to be Lord. And if you want to do that, maybe you just pray this prayer. I'm going to pray some words and I'm going to pray words that come from the Bible. It's not just the words, though. It's if you believe this in your heart. If you believe this in your heart, pray these words with me. Father, I know that I'm a sinner and that I'm separated from you. I believe your son Jesus died for my sins. And today I want to decide to follow Jesus. Regardless of the consequences, regardless of what that means. I want to ask Jesus to be my Savior. Ask Jesus to be my Lord. And if you could just pray those words, and if you let us know that there's a connection card that we ask you to fill it out before you leave, and just check that on there. I'd love to pray for you. I'd love to meet you maybe after the service. And Father, I pray for those that are believers, that you would empower us, enable us to do the things that we can't do on our own, resist sin, follow you, walk in your way. Give us supernatural power to be your witnesses, to do your will because your will is best and bring us that satisfaction. Show us that that is better. Give us a desire. Give us a longing. Give us a taste of you so that we'll taste and see that you are good and we'll want more and more and more of you and that you continue to satisfy us, continue to bring us joy, continue to help us to delight in you. In Jesus' name I pray.